my fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I am your host, Joe Fakash, and today we will be visiting Zachary Taylor, the 12th President of the United States, and his birthplace in Montebello, outside of Barbersville, Virginia. And there is going to be a little bit of a controversy with his birthplace in terms of where he was actually born. Now, before we get going, there's a few things to get out on the table. I know many of you are exhausted by being in Virginia uh, over and over and over again. This is the seventh visit that we've made to the Old Dominion State out of the first 12 presidents, and that gives you such a good idea about the primacy of Virginia and how much we were falling into these familiar patterns where we just kind of accepted that there were people that deserve to be president, and having a Virginia birthplace was certainly one of those things. And Zachary Taylor is going to be nothing if not and somebody who emulates the uh, leadership of uh, a Virginia, he's the seventh, and then being a general where he's going to follow in the footsteps of George Washington, Andrew Jackson, William Henry Harrison. And so not really charting new ground with Zachary Taylor. One of the other things that's going to be interesting, and we kind of mentioned it last week with James Knox Polk, is this is one of our last visits to the South for quite some time. Now, keep in mind, a lot of that has to do with how we were selecting candidates. And certainly for the Democratic Party, they're going to continue to shift their gaze to the northern states. And we'll be talking about that in two weeks when we get to Franklin Pierce, where there was this concerted effort among national Democrats to have these individuals who had their feet in both camps, who would be sympathetic to Southerners, but would themselves be Northerners and continue to kind of kick the can down the road. And we see where that really blows up in our face with this huge sectional divide. And then after the war, of course, it's going to be quite some time before either party gets comfortable with nominating a major candidate from the South. And we definitely hold that against the Confederacy for quite some time. And anybody who would have been sympathetic to the Confederacy or suspected of being sympathetic to the Confederacy. So like I said, it'll be quite some time before we go South again. One of the other final things with Zachary Taylor is he's one of our last presidents to own slaves. Almost all of our first 12 presidents have owned slaves. The only two who can claim that they didn't themselves own slaves was John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams. But even they had slave labor in the White House and in other uh, homes that they would run as political officials. So they benefited from this labor, whether or not they were the ones who actually owned the slave. And one of the things that we'll see after this is we will have Andrew Johnson and Ulysses Grant, who both have slaves that either their wives, families, or um, are given to them. But in terms of you know running a plantation, growing up on a plantation, Zachary is going to be the end of this era. And one of the things that comes with this is going to be a real blind spot, a real ambivalence that somebody like Zachary Taylor has, where he is going to really have sympathies for this sectional 
issue, this division that's coming up in our country, Zachary has no argument against slavery. He has benefited from it his entire life. It's only going to be that his party has a real issue with it that makes Zachary take a position on it. And it's going to be that ambivalence that ultimately does prove harmful. And we'll see where this entire group of presidents in the 1840s and 50s really do shoulder a lot of the blame for how uh, deeply divided our country becomes. Zachary is born on November the 24th, 1784, sharing a November birthday with his predecessor, James Knox Polk, also being born in November. And we believe Zachary was born at Montebello. This is in Orange County, Virginia, so same county as James Madison. And the reason that there is a little bit of a controversy is because we know that Zachary's parents are going to be in the midst of this move from Virginia to Kentucky. And so the question then becomes if they actually had Zachary at the home that they were living at, Hare Forest Farm, on one side of Orange County, or in the midst of the move, if they had given birth to Zachary when they were visiting a relative at Montebello. So either way, he's born on a plantation. It's just a question of which plantation. And we'll talk about how both plantations will commemorate this birth, but um, I am going to side with the people who argue that it is actually Montebello. We know that Zachary is named for his paternal grandfather, also a Zachary. And the Taylors are going to trace their ancestry to William Brewster, a settler at Plymouth. And then the Taylor family is then going to start with James Taylor, not that James Taylor, not the sweet baby James (laughs) musician, but this James Taylor, who will be Zachary's great-grandfather, one of the largest landowners in Virginia, and the great-grandfather of James Madison, Zachary's then second cousin. And again, remember, they're also living in Orange County. Zachary's father, Richard, is going to be a landowner himself and had served as a lieutenant colonel during the Revolution and was a victor at Brandywine, among other big battles. As payment for his service, he is going to receive land in Kentucky, which was at this point, of course, unsettled. And so he's going to move the family to outside of Louisville, Kentucky, where he will own 10,000 acres and we think 26 slaves. There may be more, but 26 is the named amount. Once in Kentucky, Richard is going to become a major political player. He will be a justice of the peace, a state legislator, and will be appointed by George Washington to serve as a collector at the Port of Louisville. He is going to find himself aligned with the Democratic-Republican Party and his fellow Virginia planting elite, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, who really would have seemed like contemporaries. What we know about his wife, Sarah, is that she is much younger than Richard, and that she also bears scarring from the revolution, where her hands are going to have been burned from lead that was being poured to make bullets. Both of the parents will die during the 1820s when Zachary is still serving in the military. And Zachary will be the third of eight children to live to maturity, with four brothers 
all of whom will serve in the military, including one who will die in the War of 1812. We know that Zachary is going to grow up in that small cabin in Springfield, this home outside of Louisville, and Zachary will have almost no recollections of Virginia and does not consider himself to be a Virginian in any capacity, but will see himself as a Kentucky person and somebody from the West. One of the stories that you find about Zachary is that when he was young, they would often go to sleep hearing the howling of wolves and that they were terrified of these native attacks that really would have been prevalent. One of Zachary's big claims is that at the age of 17, he's going to swim the entire length of the Ohio River from Louisville to Indiana. And I can say, as somebody who's visited Louisville quite a few times, I usually do the AP reading shout out my fellow AP readers, and we are frequently in Louisville, and there's a nice pedestrian bridge that you can walk over to Indiana and back. It's a pretty big river, and so that he would have been uh, able to swim it. I'm going to give him this one. We don't have anybody who claimed to have been there to see that, but does give you a sense of what would really would have um, been impressive to somebody like Zachary. One of the things that you will find about Zachary when they write these descriptions about him is that he has a really kind of disproportionate body. He has very long, gangly arms and a thick torso, and he's always, always described as having a big head. Not like a big ego, but like a big head. And he is very farsighted and never does anything to correct it. And he always has this kind of odd habit of standing and walking with a hand behind his back. And I noticed this. I always just thought that that was how they were posing him for images, but it's kind of the way that he stood and walked. One of the things you would notice uh, when looking at these images is just how kind of rumpled and comfortable that he really does present himself with. And that's going to be one of the major contradictions of Zachary Taylor, somebody who is very wealthy, but doesn't look the part, somebody who has very educated parents and himself would have had access to education, but he never makes that clear to anybody. And we'll talk about that in just a little bit. In terms of his personality, Zachary is always described as somebody who is really warm and plain-spoken, somebody who is really comfortable around other people and kind of shy at first, but maybe that was also his humility. So a complete contrast to John Tyler, who we talked about two weeks ago, and James Knox Polk, who we talked about last week, who both of them had their own issues. But Zachary, like Andrew Jackson, has this odd habit of stammering. They don't say he slobbers, but um, he speaks very fast. And so he ends up having to slow himself down. And when he's able to do that, he becomes really thoughtful and thinks through what he wants to say. Now, as I mentioned before, he does undermine himself with his clothing and being from the West and having these misconceptions about people from the West, Zachary does nothing to kind of dissuade people from these ideas that he was a bore, but he does kind of win them over with his gentlemanly qualities. He's going to be really in favor of wearing a straw hat. (laughs) He thinks that's a good look. And so while 
on the battlefield, he will really distinguish himself with his decision-making. Um, he doesn't really look the part and never really will. Because he doesn't go to college and is never going to join any of these dialectic societies that we've been talking about or debate groups or speaking groups. He never has any fraternal organizations. And so his friendship circle is kind of natural and people who he just likes hanging out with. And so he's one of the first kind of normal presidents, if you will. Um, but we see where that's not always something that is valued and he is definitely not a politician and Maybe that's why he was somewhat normal. I'm just going to throw that out there. One of the things I always show students is this contrast between the photographs that you can find of Zachary Taylor, and I'll throw some up on the website, but you can see how he photographed, and it's very rumpled, <laughs> very uh, wrinkled, and he's never smiling. And then his campaign posters were always showing him from a distance on a horse, and that was the message he wanted to convey, not necessarily the underwhelming man that you would get when you're really close up. And so we already start to see the art of campaigns when it comes to Zachary Taylor. To quote from his biographer, Holman Hamilton, though, Zachary was a gentleman, inherently gracious, even gallant where women were concerned, and an agreeable and affable host. True to the Virginia-Kentucky tradition of unstudied gentlemanliness. This is probably a good time to tell you that his political nickname was something that he earned on the battlefield, and it's one of my favorite political nicknames. He was called Old Rough and Ready. And this was going to speak to the fact that he did not put on airs. And as I said, it can serve to somewhat undermine him in terms of his intelligence. And I have to be quite honest, I kind of bought into the idea that he was not very smart. And there are going to be all these rumors that he is illiterate. And again, he doesn't really dissuade you of those ideas with the way he, that he dresses. But that old rough and ready also conveyed to voters, this approachability that you really would not have had from most other politicians. And you can kind of start to see this evolution between us having these leaders who were better than us, richer than us, came from better families, to now individuals like Zachary Taylor, who were just like us. And we can debate about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Us Magazine used to have a feature where they would say, the stars, they're just like us. I don't know that we want that from a president. I don't know that the, we want that from a candidate. And Zachary Taylor might be the reason why. In terms of his Myers-Briggs assessment, he would likely be either an ISTP or an ISTJ. And so the only thing that's different is that last letter and being perceptive or judging. In any case, it would be a lower case. But he was a definite introvert. On the positive side, he was very creative, and we see this with his tactical decision-making on the battlefield, which is really going to separate him from some of his contemporaries. And he is really good at prioritizing and finds himself to be really good in a crisis. And we'll talk about how he makes a really fateful decision in the Mexican-American War that's going to win him a lot of praise. On the negative side, of course, he can also be very stubborn and private, and he's very reserved. He makes friends, but it's very clear that he also holds a bit of himself back, and it's clear he 
didn't ever feel comfortable enough to be himself if he's doing all these things to kind of undermine his perception. And he is also frequently bored. One of the things that you find about Zachary Taylor is that he moves all the time. That's a function of being in the military and somebody who's given to this life of uh, being shipped from one place to the other. And when it comes time for his daughter to get married and she's being courted by Jefferson Davis, yes, that Jefferson Davis, Zachary is disapproving because he does not like the idea of his daughter having to go through that kind of um, not being homeless, but not, not always having a permanent location. And he doesn't want that for her. In terms of his religion, Zachary was an Episcopalian, though he never writes or speaks too much about it, and he never joins the church, but he does like going to Episcopal services, including in in Washington. Now, in terms of his education, Sarah, his mother, really does the best that she can, but Zachary is just a very unwilling student. He has no interest in anything that she tries to teach him. He's always going to be somebody who is a poor speller and doesn't really want to read or write well, and instead is going to only be interested in these stories about battlefield technique and military history. Those things get his attention, but really nothing else does. She, like I said, does the best that she can. And there is this quote that she says that he is quick in learning and patient in study, but it doesn't really go too far. There's going to be a traveling uh, teacher that comes through called Keen O'Hara, who's a classical scholar, but it really does kind of fall on deaf ears. And this down the road is going to lend itself to Zachary's perception that he might be illiterate. He never votes, and that's one thing that is (laughs) well-known about Zachary. He never votes, but some of that could be because he was in the military and was always moving and having a permanent address would have been difficult. And then when he did get word about being elected president, he doesn't spell out his whole name. And so I guess that kind of adds to it as well. One of the things that we do have to owe to Zachary is going to be the idea that he does kind of expand this diversity of Um, preparation for a president. And he's going to be one of our first presidents since George Washington, who doesn't go into law at all. He doesn't see law being the only alternative. For Zachary, it's really just the military. And that is what he's focused on. And it's going to lead to him being a military official his entire life. Zachary will serve in the military for almost 40 years first joining in the militia as a teenager, and then serving as an army recruiter. He will eventually be sent to New Orleans and Natchez, Mississippi, before the War of 1812. In 1810, he will have been a captain and is going to help to kind of restore order at Fort Knox in uh, Fort Harrison outside of Vincennes. And that's where he's going to get the attention of General William Henry Harrison, who will down the road become president. Over the course of his 40 years in the military, Zachary will be sent to far-flung places and will be, as I said before, constantly on the move. He will live in Illinois. He'll have a place down outside of Baton Rouge, be sent to the District of Columbia, and then to Minnesota. 
and is going to serve, of course, in the War of 1812 and in the Mexican-American War. But he's also serving in some of the lesser-known Native battles, including the Black Hawk War and the Second Seminole War. And so is just always being called into service on the frontier. And he likes being uh, called on. He likes having that uh, facility. It's very clear that Zachary was able to distinguish himself on the battlefield. He was very improvisational and able and rose to the challenge. And you'll hear some of those same things being said about Ulysses Grant, who will be the 18th president, that they are going to really set themselves apart on the battlefield for just how willing they are to do things that maybe other more cautious generals are going to maybe avoid. Of course, Zachary is going to constantly have this humility. He's not a self-promoter, but many of his contemporaries note that he was born to command, and that is very clear in terms of how he sets himself apart when it comes to these uh, different battles. As I said, after the War of 1812, he gets the attention of General William Henry Harrison and is given a brevet promotion to the rank of major, the first brevet promotion in all of American military history, according to General Eisenhower, and he would know he was a military historian himself. There was just something exceptional about the way that he handled himself on the battlefield. And um, again, the War of 1812 doesn't really get talked about all that much, but that is really where he's going to set himself apart. In 1844, he's sent to Fort Jessup in Louisiana and is then given the command to prevent Mexico from trying to reclaim any of the territories that at that point they were considering their land, you know, stolen land. Zachary does have, along with some of the other military officials, this tension between commands that they're being given from President Polk, but he does kind of follow these orders. He's going to advance to the Rio Grande in March of 1846, and then takes command of the American forces at the Battle of Palo Alto, and then at Resalca de la Palma, and then is going to lead the charge in the battles of Monterey, the Battle of Buena Vista, and then is going to be instrumental in reclaiming Mexico City. It's going to be Buena Vista that is really where he gets a lot of this notoriety and is going to really make his name for his political career, mainly because it's going to serve a lot like the Battle of the 300 or the Alamo, where they are going to be severely outnumbered. And Santa Ana is going to view the Americans as really vulnerable at this moment. But rather than retreating or laying low or trying to wait anything out, Taylor's going to make this really kind of decisive decision, and it proves to be successful, but is the stuff of legend. And that's going to be what a lot of people fixate on after the war is over. It's a pretty brief war, all things considered, especially when we look at the 20th century conflicts. And it is going to serve to um, spur a candidate like Zachary Taylor, somebody who can come back with this real victory, this feather in his cap. He's going to retire from the military. And it really probably would have suited him better to have literally retired and gone back to his farm in Louisiana and just called it a day. But just like William Henry Harrison from a decade before, there's going to be this call to service. And just like Harrison, 
Taylor is going to have to very quickly make up his mind about his political leanings. In all likelihood, Taylor would have been an independent. He he was an independent. He didn't necessarily believe in anything that the Democratic Party was doing. And especially with the war in Texas, he's going to be very clear that he doesn't think that Texas should then be open to the expansion of slavery. But he wasn't exactly a Whig either. And it's just going to be a kind of convenient bedfellows, a place where he will be um, welcomed, that is going to be the reason that he gets nominated from that party. The only other president who has no governmental experience leading into the office is the 45th president, Donald Trump. In both cases, both Taylor and Trump are going to have personal views that make it seem as though they have a foot in both camps. And it's going to be this somewhat uh, nonconformity to the ideological extremes that is going to make it so that they can seem at once more palatable to more voters, but then also in some ways kind of frustrate the party loyalists. And in this period, we're going to be talking over the next few weeks about some of the presidents who today we are very critical about at a really decisive moment, instead of having a president who's going to make a big move in terms of really bringing the country together, instead we get Zachary Taylor and then Millard Fillmore and then Franklin Pierce and then James Buchanan. Each one of them is going to underestimate just how divisive this issue is. It was not anywhere on Zachary Taylor's radar when he's off fighting the war in Mexico that he's going to have to make these decisions in Washington uh, for what our federal government and our federal posture is going to be. And so the idea that we thrust this on him, and you can say, yes, of course, that he accepted it, but it is going to also make it so that uh, we have really ineffectual people in that position at a time when we really need a decisive action. And by the time we do get a decisive president, it is going to be too late. Let us then turn our attention to the birthplace site. And when we come back in season two, we'll talk about this lead up to the presidency. Now, remember, Zachary is going to have been born. And the only question is whether or not he was born in Hare Forest Farm or at Montebello. And neither site is going to claim to be the place where he is consummated. (laughs) We're pretty sure that probably happened at Hare Forest. But where he actually came into this world is the one that really is going to be where we have the question marks. And by the way, when I'm saying Hare Forest, I'm meaning Hare, H-A-R-E, as in the animal, the large rabbit. And I always think of when my mother and I went to... Germany in 2008, and it was late at night. We were on our way back from Neuschwanstein to Frankfurt, and we were on these trains. She was looking out the window, and she will go to her grave believing that she saw these hares jumping around, and I didn't see them, and so I always give her a very hard time about it. Happens to be Easter week when you're listening to this, so... Um, that kind of hair. <laughs> Today it's called Hare Forest Farm rather than Hare Forest Plantation, but back here it would have been 
Hare Forest plantation. Both homes are going to be in the Taylor extended family. And they were leaving the Hare Forest farm, which was going to have been Zachary's maternal grandmother, William Strother family, is going to have that plantation. And then the other home, Montebello, is going to be also in the family. So it's just a question of, you know, where actually was happening. Now, they don't get to move on to Kentucky for a little period because they're going to be quarantined, we believe, with measles. And then they actually make their way to Kentucky. So little Zachary would have no memory of Virginia. The property is going to still be standing, by the way, and it's going to stay in the Taylor family homes for quite some time until 1934. It's going to have been sold to European developers in 1979 on the exact same day when Greenway Plantation, the home of John Tyler from episode 10, uh, that is going to also be sold at the, with the same auctioneers. There was no effort made to find the exact location at Montebello, but we generally believe it was in a guest house or an outbuilding on the property, and it probably isn't still standing even if the main plantation house is. There is a brick chimney that we believe might have been with the uh, birth house, but again, it's not up for public consumption. And so while in the 1920s we were seeing these huge efforts made to find the precise birthplace of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson, no effort like that was ever made to commemorate Zachary Taylor. Now, some of that likely is because nobody in Virginia considers Zachary Taylor a Virginian. And The home that is standing in Louisiana is also in private hands. And I just don't think Zachary Taylor was that much of a major president for there to be these huge kind of commemorations for him. And, you know, some of that, of course, is owed to the fact that he is not going to have been in office for all that long. Now, the first birthplace commemoration is going to be at Hare Forest, where even today they have it listed in the National Register of Historic Places as the birthplace of Zachary Taylor. And there is going to be a bronze tablet that is put there in 1900 that reads, on this site, Zachary Taylor, President of the United States, was born uh, November 24th, 1784. And nobody's ever forced them to remove it. And again, there isn't a lot of investigation into which one is more accurate. I haven't ever visited the Hare Forest. I do plan to, just as a completist, but, um, you know, we'll let them have that one as well. In 1929, they're going to erect the uh, sign outside of Montebello that is going to list that it is the birthplace. When you go there today, um, there is a sign on the side of the road, and then there's the gate that leads to the property. As I've said before, it is privately owned. Uh, You can take a picture with the sign, which I did, but you want to keep in mind that it is somebody's actual property and, uh, you know, they get to determine who gets up into the gate. And I didn't just try to trespass the way that I attempted to at Thomas Jefferson. Like I said, there is a historical marker, so that is something to do. And then I do want to uh, remind you that in that same area, you know, you're just outside of Orange in Virginia, that is going to be where James Madison's home, Montpelier, is, as well as his grave, which we'll be talking about in seasons two and three. 
And there is also in the neighborhood in Barbersville, one of the really interesting historic sites, the ruins of Governor Barber and what they call the Barbersville ruins. Today, there is a winery there. I'm not really into wine, but I know a lot of people are. And then there are the ruins that go along with it. And there was this mansion that was designed by Thomas Jefferson and has his familiar octagonal room. And then the house is going to go up in flames. They never raise the site, but they also don't try to rebuild it. So it is left as ruins and it's very cool. You know, the youth say it's grammable. I agree completely. It is definitely worth checking out. So one of the really cool sites in the neighborhood. If you're looking for other Zachary Taylor sites, there is Springfield, the home where Taylor grew up in Louisville. It is on the National Register of Historic Places, and we'll be talking about it in Season 2, but it is also still in private hands. His gravesite is right nearby as well. When I went to visit Zachary Taylor's birthplace, it was in June of 2017 on that swing that I've been talking about, where I went to on that very day. (laughs) It started out in Woodrow Wilson's birthplace, went to Charlottesville, and then went to Montpelier, then to Zachary Taylor's birthplace. And then that was the evening that I went by Thomas Jefferson's birthplace for the first time. So it is very doable to do all of these at the same time. With Zachary Taylor's, you don't need a ton of time to take a picture by the side of the road. Like I said, if you want to make a day of it, I would recommend checking out Hare Forest Farm, which I plan to do, in the neighborhood. It's about six miles away. And then the Barbersville Ruins is definitely something worth a nice leisurely walk around. So that is what I found when I went there. In terms of what it tells us about the president, as I've said before, you know, Zachary Taylor is just going to be an anomaly in many ways. He was non-political for much of his life, is thrust into this office. And as a general spoiler, you might know that he's our second president to die in office. So he's not going to serve out his term. He's also going to be really unsuited for this job, an uncritical man at a very critical time. And That is going to be a huge mark against him. I once read that he wasn't so much a failure as a forgettable president. And I think that really kind of sums it up. It would be really difficult to expect too much from Zachary Taylor at that moment. But the fact that he, along with the three men who come after him, are going to see instead this notion that they can just kick the can down the road, that is what becomes really problematic. And We definitely see that in the way that there is this sign outside of his birthplace and there's another place six miles away that claims his birthplace. And neither one is going to, you know, they're not playing a football game to determine who is actually right. And there isn't any great investigations to get to the bottom of it. We just kind of accept it and move on. And that's really kind of the notion with Zachary Taylor and I definitely think that as we go through the rest of the 1800s, you are going to be seeing more and more individuals like Zachary Taylor. And it's going to be in the 20th century that I think we start to really kind of up our ante in terms of what we expect out of an individual. Those expectations were not in place for Zachary. When we come back next week, we're going to be talking about the guy who finishes his term, Millard Fillmore. 
I have to tell you, in doing research for Millard Fillmore, I have learned so much more about this guy, and I have a lot more respect for him. Not as a president, but certainly in terms of how he is going to build himself into a political figure in central and western New York, and how that is going to put him in that position. I don't think you're going to come away thinking he's the world's greatest president. That's not the intent, but it is going to give you at least some indication of how that guy got there. And so you will definitely be interested in Millard Fillmore and his birthplace at Moravia. In terms of what it tells us about the president, as I've said before, you know, Zachary Taylor is just going to be an anomaly in many ways. He was non-political for much of his life, is thrust into this office. And as a general spoiler, you might know that he's our second president to die in office. So he's not going to serve out his term. He's also going to be really unsuited for this job, an uncritical man at a very critical time. And that is going to be a huge mark against him. I once read that he wasn't so much a failure as a forgettable president. And I think that really kind of sums it up. It would be really difficult to expect too much from Zachary Taylor at that moment. But the fact that he, along with the three men who come after him, are going to see instead this notion that they can just kick the can down the road, that is what becomes really problematic. And we definitely see that in the way that you know there is this sign outside of his birthplace and there's you know another place 6 miles away that claims his birthplace and neither one is going to you know they're not playing a football game to d- determine who is actually right and there isn't any great investigations to get to the bottom of it we just kind of accept it and move on and that's really kind of the notion with Zachary Taylor and I definitely think that as we go through the rest of the 1800s, you are going to be seeing more and more individuals like Zachary Taylor. And it's going to be in the 20th century that I think we start to really kind of up our ante in terms of what we expect out of an individual. Those expectations were not in place for Zachary. When we come back next week, we're going to be talking about the guy who finishes his term, Millard Fillmore. I have to tell you, in doing research for Millard Fillmore, I have learned so much more about this guy, and I have a lot more respect for him, not as a president, but certainly in terms of how he is going to build himself into a political figure in central and western New York, and how that is going to put him in that position. I don't think you're going to come away thinking he's the world's greatest president. That's not the intent, but it is going to give you at least some indication of how that guy got there. And so you will definitely be interested in Millard Fillmore and his birthplace at Moravia. Remember to be checking out the podcast website at visitingthepresidents.com, where you can find photographs of my trips, other images, and links to other readings and visitor information. For this episode, my sources were Doug Weed's The Raising of a President, William D. Gregorio's Complete Book of U.S. Presidents, and Louis Picone's Where the Presidents Were Born. I have added a PayPal link on the episode page on visitingthepresidents.com, as well as the episode page. Any monies received will be used for future trips, as well as the hosting fees for the website and for the podcast. Remember, you can also help support Visiting the Presidents by liking and subscribing on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you get this podcast, as well as 
being a fan of the social media sites, I am on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Visiting the Presidents. And remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com and subscribing there as well. Now let's get in our cars and go to visit the presidents. See ya.